following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, as we turn to and open the Word of God this morning, may the God of the Word bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you May the God of the word be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's my honor and privilege to invite you to take your copy of God's word this morning and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Lamentations. The Old Testament book of Lamentations. If you find the book of Jeremiah, which is one of the larger books in the Old Testament, Lamentations can be found right after it. Once you're there... Turn to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations 3. I want to consider with you this morning, in the time we have together, verses 21 through 26. As we begin by reading the text, I think it'll become plain why I chose to title this message, God, our hope and portion. God, our hope and portion. So as always, it's with a great sense of privilege and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the life-imparting, hope-arousing, faith-sustaining, Christ-exalting words of the triune God. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Grace Community Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There was a time when Moses led the flock of sheep that belonged to his father-in-law to the west side of the wilderness and approached Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And it was there that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a burning bush. As Moses was drawn to the flames, we read that he looked closer and he realized that although the bush was on fire... It wasn't being consumed. And as the curiosity of Moses increased, he determined to conduct an investigation and determine why the bush was on fire but not being burned or consumed. And just as Moses turned aside to behold this amazing sight, God called to Moses out of the bush saying, Moses, Moses. And he answered, here I am. Then God said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
It was then that Moses, the man of God, learned that the God of the universe will not simply be studied and analyzed as the object of man's curiosity, but he will be worshipped and revered as the object of man's highest affections. Well, in one sense, every time we open God's word, whether in public or in private, we find ourselves on holy ground, reading holy words written by holy men who were being carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. And these holy words, when applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit, produce holy people to the praise of our holy triune God. But in another sense, there are particular passages in the Bible that we might reverently regard as especially holy ground. And the passage to which we turn our attention this morning is one of those passages that sets us on especially holy ground. And the reason for that is because it pulls our hearts into aspects of God's holiness that are so breathtakingly beautiful and ravishingly radiant. This portion of the Word of God here in Lamentations chapter 3, when rightly understood, has a way of arousing our hope and awakening our faith in our triune God. It has a way of reinvigorating our love and reigniting our affections and reorienting our lives around God. It's a passage that contains enough fuel to keep our lamps burning, enough gravitational pull to keep our hearts humble and low before our God, and enough motivation to keep us fighting the good fight of faith as we lay hold of eternal life. You'll notice that the title of the book in English is Lamentations. A lamentation refers to a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. However, in the original Hebrew, the title of the book is Icha, which means how. And it's taken from the very first word in the book. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. The title of the book is intended to call attention to how much Jerusalem has suffered under the just judgment of God because of her sin. Icha is also found in chapter 2, verse 1, which reads, How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. Again, chapter 4, verse 1. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. The idea, of course, stemming from Jeremiah 19.11, is that the sons of Jerusalem, like pottery, will be shattered to pieces because of their sin. Although the author of Lamentations is unnamed and unidentified in the book, many scholars believe it was written by the prophet Jeremiah for several reasons one of which is because of the statement found in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verse 25, where Jeremiah is said to have, quote, uttered a lament for Josiah. After all, it was Jeremiah who prophesied to the nation of Judah from the days of King Josiah until sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. He warned the people again and again, that because of its sin and because of its lack of repentance, their lack of repentance, they would be destroyed by the Babylonians and they would be taken into Babylonian captivity. 
Well, when we turn to Lamentations, we find that God kept his word. (coughs) Judgment came. Jerusalem fell. And the people were taken into Babylon. The crown had fallen from Judah's head. And when we turn to the book of Lamentations, we turn to something of a tragic, heartbreaking eulogy at a funeral where the author mourns the loss of the nation of Judah who has gone into exile because of its sin, just as God said it would. The Puritan Thomas Brooks wisely pointed out that one of the ways in which Satan draws our souls into sin is by presenting the bait and hiding the hook. Well, the book of Lamentations is the hook that pierced the nation of Judah in the days of Jeremiah. And let me just say that if you ever find yourself as a Christian or even as an unbeliever toying with sin and playing with the fires of lust, and if you ever find yourself attracted to the bait that Satan keeps placing before your eyes and you need in your soul, a sobering reminder of where sin leads and a fresh sight of the hook that Satan hides beneath the bait, read the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations describes the wages of sin that we tend to forget when we are tempted to sin. It describes the loneliness into which sin brings people. It describes the exile into which sin takes us and the bondage into which sin leads us, and the misery into which sin carries us. And most sobering of all, it describes the wrath and holy hatred of God against human rebellion. It's a chilling book when you see the ruin and the rubble, and you see, you can almost smell as you read Lamentations, the fires still burning from the destruction. The book of Lamentations is a visual reminder of the truth of Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, where the apostle Paul tells us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap destruction. The book is essentially five chapters that mourn the reality that majesty has turned to misery. Blessedness has turned to bondage. And God, because of the multitude of Judah's transgressions, has turned from friend to foe. And the book ends with a plea for mercy as the writer Jeremiah says to God, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. And embedded within these five chapters of darkness and despair and despondency are a few lines of fresh air and life-inducing hope that, for a moment, bring the writer out of the rubble and out of the ruin. And these few lines are the ones to which I would call your attention this morning. They are like the small cluster of bright stars on a dark night that you can see in an opening of the clouds. These words are like the light at the end of a long tunnel of hardship and hopelessness. And as I stated earlier, they call our attention to aspects of the holiness of God that serve as fuel for lasting joy and fuel for genuine contentment and fuel for living, vibrant, animated hope. 
The passage reveals the holiness of God's love and the holiness of his mercy, the holiness of his faithfulness and his goodness. These attributes are holy in that there is no love like God's love. There is no mercy like God's mercy. There is no faithfulness like the faithfulness of our God, and there is no goodness like the goodness of God. This morning, as we look back upon the previous year, because that's just how we are wired, I think about the coming year. And many of you are thinking about the coming year, 2024. And I know that many of us have plans and goals and fresh purposes and plans and commitments and resolutions. And that's not a bad thing. It's good to make God-honoring resolutions and plans as long as we do so in the spirit of James chapter 4, where we are told not to boast about tomorrow, not to boast about tomorrow, but to realize that our lives are but a mist or a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We can have our New Year's resolutions as long as we realize that the new year isn't necessarily promised and guaranteed The next year isn't promised to you. The next five minutes are not promised to you. And so what you and I ought to say and how we ought to think about the coming year is, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And as I said a while ago, it's good to make resolutions and Christ-honoring commitments, but at the end of the day, and please listen very carefully, the resolutions and commitments that we are to live upon and be motivated by are the resolutions and commitments of our God, which are many, but that are ultimately bound up in his commitment to display to us his full and lasting glory for our full and lasting joy in him. We are to derive our joy and our contentment and our sense of completeness from God's commitment to satisfy our souls with his steadfast love as he brings to completion the good work that he began in us. And so when your resolutions and plans fall to the ground, you're to rest upon his commitment to you, Christian. You're to rest upon his resolution, flowing from the beauty of the new covenant, to do you good forever. The passage before us is fitting as we consider a new year because in it, the prophet Jeremiah looks back, but he also looks forward even as we look back and look forward as well today. I was just standing in the line at the grocery store yesterday, and I noticed that Time Magazine published its 2023 year-in-review where it calls our attention to all the allegedly momentous events of 2023. And as I thought about it, what we have in the Bible is God's redemptive history in review, recorded for us, for our good, for the purpose of keeping our faith and our hopes alive. It's the record of his unwavering faithfulness to his people given to us in order to keep our eyes on the prize of seeing him when all of this is over. Our passage here in Lamentations chapter 3 calls our attention to five reasons why we, like the prophet Jeremiah, can have hope even in dark days. You see, as Christian believers, we can identify with Jeremiah on the basis that we, like him, are in exile in this present world. We are not in our homeland. 
We are sojourners and we are exiles, according to the Apostle Peter. We are waiting for our king to bring us home. As Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like our believing forefathers, we long for a better country because we realize that here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. But in the meantime, we desperately need our hope in God to stay alive. It's called endurance. Like the writer to the Hebrews says, you have need of endurance. You have need of keeping your hope alive. And these words here in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, give us five reasons for our hope to stay alive. Five reasons we can abound in hope. Notice how he begins. Jump up to verse 16. We'll kind of get some context here. He, speaking of God, has made my teeth grind on gravel. The picture is that he's been laid low in the dust of humiliation. He is down in the gravel. He can taste the gravel, as it were. And he made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. And so I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. And then he prays, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. In other words, the bitterness. Look upon my, my, my terrible estate, O God. And then verse 20 says, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Mark down his sense of hopelessness. Spiritually speaking, he is in a pile of ashes. His soul has been stripped of its peace. He's forgotten what happiness is. It's completely foreign to him. His endurance has perished and his hope has died. He confesses that. My hope has died along with my endurance. I can't continue anymore. I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And the more his soul thought about these things, he says he finds himself bowing lower and lower to the ground. His memories were just sinking him lower and lower. But then we come to verse 21, which marks a turning point in the mind of the prophet. This is truly the theological high point of the book of Lamentations. What's crazy is that the circumstances hadn't changed, but the prophet had changed. He says in verse 21, but this, The buts of scripture are always the most precious words. But God, in his rich mercy and unfathomable grace, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were once foolish and disobedient, led astray by various passions and pleasures, hating one another and hated by one another. But, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, so that we might be heirs of eternal life. But God, and Jeremiah says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The hope that was there in the ashes is now resurrected. 
In the midst of all of this darkness, all of this gloom, and all of this hopelessness, Jeremiah calls something to mind that arouses his faith and awakens his hope. It's interesting that the same memory that had this man down is the same memory that now ignites his faith and his hope in God. The same memory. And the same is true for us. You see, our minds are capable of bringing us down. But they're also capable of raising us up. It all depends on what you choose to fix your mind upon as a Christian. What you choose to dwell upon. What you choose to ponder. Memories can haunt you and haul you into a state of hopelessness. But memories can also help you and haul you into a state of hope. The phrase in Hebrew is actually very interesting. Our English translations say that Jeremiah calls something to mind, but the phrase literally means that he's turning back or returning to something in his heart. It's as though he's saying, even though it seems like there is nothing to look forward to anymore, my heart keeps going back to this one thing. My heart keeps going back to this one thing. And friends, the same is true for us. Each one of us has something to which we always turn back. Each one of us has something to which we always return. An anchor, a default, a starting point, a foundation that everything in our lives rests upon. And I ask you this morning, when life goes sour and south, and when you sink into pits of hopelessness and despair, what does your heart turn back to? What truth does your heart revert to? What do you call to mind? What do you return to? Well, Jeremiah is about to tell us what he returns to. He is about to tell us what his anchor is. And we know that whatever it is, it's the means of awakening and arousing his sense of hope in God. It must be something so precious and so powerful because it raises Jeremiah out of the ashes of hopelessness to a position of hope and happiness. In a very real sense, whatever his anchor point is, it calms his soul and puts it to rest again. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Hope. Hope refers to something, an expectation. Something that a person looks forward to, and this something gives that person a sense of peace and confidence. And now Jeremiah lays down the first reason for his hope. This is what he calls to mind. This is what he returns to in his heart. And this is the first reason given to you today as to why we can have hope. And the truth is this. God is good all the time. God is good all the time. Look at verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. The first attribute that he falls back upon, the first characteristic about Yahweh that his heart returns to as an anchor point is God's steadfast love. His steadfast love. This is an interesting word. This is arguably, this is not an understatement. 
This is arguably, outside of the name of God, one of the most precious words in the Bible. Steadfast love. It's one word in the Hebrew. It's hesed. Hesed. H-E-S-E-D. One of the most precious words in all of the Bible. And it's very difficult for translators to translate. Our English version, our English standard says steadfast love. Some of your translations say loving kindness. Some say loyal love. The point is that we have all these English translators trying to wrap their minds around the beauty of this word and the potency of this word. Some translate it as mercy, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, loyalty. And there's no single English word that really quite gets it. And that's why we have translations like steadfast love, loyal love, loving kindness. As one writer puts it, the word describes something that happens within an existing relationship, whether between two human beings or between God and man. In human relationships, hesed implies loving our neighbor, not merely in terms of warm emotional feelings, but in acts of love and service that we owe to the other person simply because he is part of the covenant community. In other words, this loyal love is not necessarily a love of emotions. It is an act of the will. It flows out of God's commitment and faithfulness to himself, to his word, and to his people. It's not a romantic love. It's a loyal love, an act of the will, not an expression of his emotions. What's interesting here is that there's a textual variant in the text, meaning it can be taken in a number of ways. It could either mean the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, or because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we are not brought to an end. And really, we can go both ways because both are so emphatically true according to the rest of Scripture. The steadfast love, the loyal love that God has for his people doesn't end. Even in the midst of all our trials and all our temptations and all our transgressions, his loyal love toward us never ceases. It's always there. And it's always there because of the new covenant. It's always there because when our Savior said, it is finished, and the blood of the eternal covenant was there poured out for us, that guaranteed that from that point on, God's people would always have God's hesed to lift their weary souls and their tired spirits and their sinful hearts. It's also true, the other variant, that because of his hesed, we are not brought to an end. It is mercy that he didn't kill us in our sleep last night. It is according to his hesed, his loving faithfulness towards us. And you hear this kind of uh, description in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, has said, and to walk humbly before your God? It's one of the first attributes that comes to mind in that wonderful self-revelation that God 
brought to Moses on the mountain in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed and faithfulness, keeping hesed for thousands of years because it never ceases. Really, this hesed, this intense love that God has for us, it flows out of his own commitment, out of his own word. Even when we are unlovable, this love hits us. Even when there's nothing in us to awaken this love or to encourage this love, his love as a husband still pursues us as his people. That's what's so precious about this word. This steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, even when we cease to love God, when we are tempted to turn to find our pleasure from the fleeting pleasures of sin and the fleeting pleasures of this world, his steadfast love never ceases. God is always good to his people. Next, we read here that his mercies never come to an end. This is another precious word regarding God, his attributes, his mercies. The word refers to deep compassion, compassion that is in the bowels of a person. The word is also translated as yearning. His yearning for his people never ends, never comes to an end. It's interesting because in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 26, it's actually translated as yearned when we read of this woman given to Solomon. You remember there, he was going to split the baby in half because they were fighting over the baby. And one woman says it's hers, another woman says it's hers. So Solomon in his wisdom says, all right, Chop the baby in half. You get one half, you get the other half. But then the woman, the real mother, speaks up and it says, because her heart yearned for her son. She says, oh Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. Don't put him to death. That was the real mother. Why? She yearned for him. There's there's a mercy that that yearned for his well-being, that yearned for his safety. The steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases, and his mercy, his yearning, his inner pity for his people never comes to an end. You have this to look forward to every moment of your life. Even though the next year isn't promised, this is what's promised. Even though the next week isn't promised to you, this is what you can look upon and expect from God. And it's not presumption. It's taking God at his word. It's not presuming upon his mercy. It's saying, hey, this is who he is. He is unchanging. And the blood of the eternal covenant has been poured out. This is what I have to look forward to. Now, what really can you say that of in this world? Because everything changes. Our loves, our affections, our passions, our goals, our careers, everything changes. Everything can change tomorrow. The loss of a loved one the loss of a job. But this is what you have to look forward to. Based upon this passage, this precious text, no Christian has any ground ever to say, I have nothing to look forward to anymore. That is a lie from the pit of hell. This is what you can look forward to. The steadfast, loyal love of your God. A loyal love that moved him to send his own son, the very heart and heartbeat of heaven 
to die for your sin in order to bring you to himself. His mercies never come to an end. Never, ever come to an end. The reason we can have hope this morning is because God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Next, as we move on, he mentions a second reason why we can have hope and why our hope can stay alive. Even in the midst of despair, despondency, and misery, whenever it hits us. And that second reason is this. God is ours. I'm sorry, that's the, that's the last point. You gotta love electronics. Always changes, right? The second reason why we can have hope is that God is worthy of all our trust. God is worthy of all our trust. Look at verse 23. He says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Notice this regarding his mercies. They are new every morning. They are new every morning. These, this, this merciful yearning within the heart of God is like fresh manna that meets us every morning. Manna, that substance, that food, that what is it? Bread that sustained the people of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. That's like his mercy to us. And one of the things that was unique about that manna is that you couldn't, you couldn't store it. You couldn't collect it and put it in the storage unit for the week. You had to collect it every day. God was teaching his people that they were to rely on his faithfulness, his steadfast love and his mercy every day because sufficient for the day is its own trouble, right? Tomorrow will worry about itself. But God is worthy of all our trust and there is a fresh mercy in God waiting for his people every morning when they wake up. We don't live on yesterday's mercy. We live upon the fresh mercies that God displays to us every single day of our lives. Again, this banishes the thought of even saying, I have nothing more to look forward to. That is so opposite of what the scriptures teach us. His mercies are new every morning. One of the reasons I love every sunrise and even the ones that look the same when there's no clouds over the Oregon mountains is because every sunrise is screaming that God's mercies are new for me today and new for you who are in Christ. Every sunrise, every time that moon comes up, every time that sun sets, you are to be reminded of God's renewal, the renewal of God's mercy for your life every day. And this is huge help for us because we go through life struggling and putting sin to death and it's hard and it gets exhausting sometimes and it gets depressing sometimes because it just feels like, man, how long have I been a Christian and I still struggle with this and that and I still say things like this or that? And we sometimes go to bed so just low, low, low in our hearts, bowed down to the ground in the pile of ashes like Jeremiah is talking about. When we, we go to bed that way, well, guess what? When we wake up in the morning, we have this promise that his mercies are new for us that morning. Mercy, not giving you what 
you deserve. Mercy is the reality of God holding back what you deserve. You realize that God doesn't give us what we deserve. And this also is fuel to fight off the sin of discontentment and the sin of grumbling. Because at every moment of every day, you are not entitled to anything but the wages of sin. You are not entitled to anything but the just judgment and wrath of a holy God. That's what you're entitled to. That's what you can say and say, I deserve that. Everything else is mercy. The dripping of God's mercy in our lives. Everything. Even on our worst day, God's mercy there meets us. Mercy every morning. God is good all the time, and God is worthy of all our trust. And now what he does is he shifts in the second line of our second verse here. He has been writing to people, writing for a human audience. Now what he does in this second line is he shifts from talking to people to talking to God. You see, he understood something that we often forget, and that is the fact that right theology always produces a reverent doxology. In other words, right thinking always produces and should produce reverent worship. He says, great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. You guys thought that was a hymn that was invented much later in life, right? No, this comes all the way from Jeremiah's day. Great is your faithfulness. Great. It is great. It is massive. It is so huge. You are faithful to your people. The word has to do with God keeping his word. God keeping his word. God making a promise and then making good on that promise. Great is your faithfulness. It has to do with this truthfulness, this aspect, this, this attribute of God. His truthfulness, his trustworthiness. And what's beautiful is that this faithfulness continues to us today. God is faithful to do everything he says he will do in your life. The good work that he began in you, he will be faithful to complete that good work. He is faithful in providing for you. He is faithful in giving you what you Need As a father, he is faithful to provide for your needs. As a defender, he is faithful to protect you from your greatest dangers. Sometimes dangers that arise within yourself and in myself. He is faithful to warn us and faithful to remind us of his promises and his love and his mercies that are new every morning. And we know that these promises, these guarantees of God's love now for us are all guaranteed because of what Christ has done on our behalf. All the promises of God in Jesus are yes and amen. Yes and amen. His mercies are new and constant. His faithfulness is more faithful than the sun that comes up every morning. All of the consistent things in life that happen day in and day out are ultimately reminders of a faithfulness that does not change. 
Do you realize that God is faithful to you, to you all the time? There's a word for a husband that is faithful to his wife 99% of the time. And that word is called unfaithful. God is not 99% faithful to us. God is 100% faithful to his people. He always has our good in mind. He always has your best in mind. It's as though God looks for new ways to satisfy you with his steadfast love. Do you realize something of the heart of God? That he, he as a creative creator, he, he, he looks for ways. He not like looks like he's like, you know, unknowing because he's, he's perfect in knowledge. But in our sense, he, 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 he expresses his, has said to us, his faithfulness to us in, in ways that are new to us. That's how his heart operates. That's what love is. That's what hesed is. That's what mercy is. That's what faithfulness is. That's something to look forward to, isn't it? God is good all the time. God is worthy of all our trust. He's worthy of all our trust. There is a third reason. And that comes from verse 24. And that reason is this. God is ours and he is all that we will ever need. The reason our hope can stay alive today is because God is ours and he is all that we will ever need. Look at verse 24 with me. He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Notice the transitions in the text. He goes from talking about God to people and then he goes to talking to God, and then he goes now to talking with himself. Now, in the Old Testament, there are examples, and even in the Bible, there are examples of talking to your soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. It's the, 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 the speaker talking to his inmost person, his inmost being. Well, now we have an example of the inmost person speaking truth to the person. Remember that thing that he constantly goes back to in his heart, that thing he returns to in his heart? Well, now that thing is now speaking to him. And it's this. The Lord, or Yahweh, is my portion, says my soul. This is a man who is going through so much hardship and disaster and ruin and devastation and loss, and loss, on top of loss. And he says, the Lord is my portion. This is real estate language here, by the way. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, when Israel went into the promised land, you read about how God allotted them certain territories and, and, and portions of territory. That same word is used to describe God. It's as though he's saying, God is my lot of land. You remember that all these tribes were given different pieces of territory. But there was one group that never received land. Who were they? The Levites. The Levites. And the reason they were never given land is God says, I will be their portion. And that's a picture of us who are, like the Levites, a royal priesthood in Christ. We are not given anything in this world to ultimately be ours to inherit forever. I mean, in one sense, we, the meek will inherit the earth because we're going to reign and rule with Christ. 
However, in this land, in this life, nothing really belongs to us at all. We might say, oh, I own an acre out there. I own five acres out here. But really, at the end of the day, it's all borrowed. It's all God's. But the Lord says to us as his high priests, as his, as his royal priesthood, I should say, I am your portion. In other words, I am what you get. I am what you get. And this is so precious because Jeremiah realizes this in all that he has suffered. I mean, literally, he was taken out, stripped out of his own land, and now he's there in Babylon, completely new land, completely new territory. And he says, you know what? Even in this devastating situation, God is my portion. God is mine. And this is, so, this is such strong medicine for our souls when we realize that really what we have is God. And what's beautiful is that not only is that all we have, but that is all we need. God is not only all we need and all we have, it's, he's all we need. It's interesting how Job confessed in the midst of all of his suffering. Naked I came from my mother's room and naked I will leave this earth. And in a sense, we will leave the same way. We don't get to take anything with us, but one thing we possess is the greatest of all possessions. God himself. This is beautiful that God would give himself to us, that God would grant us the privilege of having him. Having him. We have him, we have life. We have him, we have light. We have him, we have understanding. We have him, we have joy. We have him, we have stability. We have him, we have encouragement. We have him, we have hope. We have every good and perfect gift because we have him. That is strong medicine for awakening and arousing hope and faith in God in this world. God is good all the time. God is worthy of all our trust because his faithfulness is so great. His mercies are new every morning. They're guaranteed to us in Christ. And we can have hope this morning because God is ours and he is all that we will ever need. Do you realize that this morning? That the goal of our salvation the goal of our redemption, the goal of the cross work of Jesus Christ is to bring us to God, to have him. God is ours and we are his. That's what Peter said, you remember in 1 Peter chapter 3, that Christ suffered once the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. God is the goal of our salvation. The, the, the possession of God is the goal of our redemption. You see, forgiveness and justification and adoption, all of those are just means to a greater end. You're forgiven so that you can have God. You are justified so that you can have God. You are adopted into the family so that you can have God as your father. You see, all of the rich treasures that we possess in salvation are just gifts, means to bring us to God, our portion. He is our land. He is our territory. He is what we get when all of this is over. And he is what we have now as a foretaste of coming glory. He is ours and we are his. He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. The Lord is my portion. God is ours and he is all that we will ever need. That's truth that you need to preach to yourself every day. 
you might go tomorrow and suffer loss. You might suffer loss a month from now, a tremendous loss. But I want you to know that God in the gospel can become yours by faith in Jesus Christ. Can be yours. And all that he is given to you. Here's the fourth reason. Well, let's finish off the verse, actually. Sorry. He not only says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, says my innermost man. He says, therefore, I will hope in him. Because he is mine, I will hope in him. My expectation will be of him. That's why he has hope. This is what he calls to mind. God is good all the time. He is worthy of all my trust. And he is mine as my portion forever. What are you focused on in this world? What excites you the most in terms of acquisition, acquiring? Friends, your level of maturity as a Christian is determined by how you answer that question. If it's a goal to one day I want to get this and then or get a wife or get a husband and then get a house and then get land, friends, as a Christian, you should say my, my, my greatest hope and my expectation and my longing is that one day I will lay hold of with my own hands and see with my own eyes the God who has called me to himself. And I will see, like Job says, with my own eyes and not another, I myself, after my flesh has been thus destroyed, I will, I will see my Redeemer. I will see him face to face. He is my portion. And you can say that, Christian. God is your portion. Therefore, hope in him. Well, fourthly, there's a fourth reason we are given as to why we can have hope. A fourth reason that keeps our hope alive. And it's in verse 25, and it's this truth. God is good to all who seek him. Here's why you can have hope this morning, is that God is good to all who seek him. We are told in the book of Hebrews that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that reward is himself. That reward is himself. Oh, he blesses us with assurance of, of, of salvation. He blesses us with foretastes of glory as, as, as our hearts abound in hope and abound in encouragement and abound in the expectation of seeing him face to face. We're all granted glimpses of those realities. but he's good to all who seek him. Notice the parallelism again here. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Yahweh is good to those who wait for him. We talked about last week, as we concluded our Advent series, the idea of waiting upon God. And we saw how in Jude, he kind of gives us a formula for how to properly and biblically wait for God. It's to Wait while we build ourselves on our most holy faith and while we pray in the Holy Spirit. As we keep ourselves in the love of God, as we snatch others out of the fire, those are all things to do as we wait. And what we can look forward to as we wait is God's goodness being displayed to our lives. Again, this is what we can look forward to every day is to have the faith to be able to say, God, as I seek you today, as I wait upon you. Now, there's a lot of things that we're waiting on with regards to the Lord and our relationship with him, right? We're waiting ultimately for the consummation. We're waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are waiting for the return of our King. But on a day-to-day -day level, we are constantly, and we are to be waiting upon the Lord. 
we are to be praying and waiting for answered prayer. We read the word and we see God's purposes and plans for our lives. And in that sense, we are waiting for God to continue to sanctify us. We are waiting in sanctification. We are waiting for answered prayer. I mean, we are commanded to pray, told, invited to pray, to ask for great things because we have a great king. And so we live lives of waiting upon God to answer our deepest longings and our cries. You need fellowship? You need Christian friendship? Pray and ask and wait for God. Those are good things that he wants to give to his people. He loves giving good gifts to his people. You're lacking assurance? Ask God to give you the assurance of salvation. Ask God to bring to your heart and soul the assurance that you belong to him. You're asking God to free you from a bondage, you know, some bondage to, to, to a specific sin or sins. Ask and seek, and God is good to those who wait for him and who seek him. Notice how waiting and seeking are used synonymously in this, in this parallel verse. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So it just shows to, that, that, that waiting is not a passive thing in the Bible. To wait upon God is to seek him. To wait for him is to look for him. To look for him as his attributes are displayed, even in creation. To look for him in his word. To look for him even in the display of his holiness and his characteristics and attributes in the lives of his children, in the lives of his people. We are to wait upon God by, look, by seeking God, by seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And it's therein that we find that we have all these things added to us. We prioritize God, we prioritize seeking God, and he ensures that we have everything that we will ever need. God is good to all who seek him, and these truths are just lifting Jeremiah up out of the ashes. The fact that God is good all the time, and he's worthy of all our trust, and he is ours, and he is all that we will ever need, and he is good to all who seek him. And there's a final reason here that we are given as to why Jeremiah had hope and why we can have hope. And that comes to us in verse 26. Verse 26. He says, It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. The fifth reason as to why our hope can stay alive is that God will ultimately deliver all who wait for him. God will ultimately deliver all who wait for him. You see, I don't know exactly what Jeremiah was waiting for here. It could be that he's waiting to be delivered back to the promised land, out of captivity, to be taken out of Babylon, waiting for God to come and save him, as it were, out of Babylonian captivity and bring him back to the land, something that would eventually happen, by the way. And so he says, it is good that one should wait quietly, for the salvation of the Lord. And again, the reason we have hope this morning is that we too are waiting quietly, but yet waiting while we seek God for the day of final deliverance. That's what this word salvation means. It's translated as deliverance elsewhere in the Old Testament. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This quiet waiting is really a confident waiting. It's not a, it's not a waiting that's anxious. It's not a, a waiting that is this antsy, like, like, you know, like 
flowing from anxiety, it's a steady waiting, knowing that God is faithful, his mercies are new every morning, he's going to complete the good work he began in me, he's going to bring to completion everything he began, and I can wait confidently, and I can wait quietly. You see, this is, this is a waiting where the soul is satisfied. The soul is at rest because God is good all the time, because he's worthy of all our trust, because he is our portion and we need nothing else, and because he's good to all who seek him and will ultimately deliver all who wait for him. Friends, we like Jeremiah are in exile in this world and we are looking forward to the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He will descend from heaven with a shout, with a cry of command. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive in that day will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. And if that does not occur in our day, we do have something to look forward to. It, is not, it will not be our worst day, the day of our death, when death will serve as God's chariot to bring us to himself, because he is our portion. The believer doesn't fear death. We saw in Revelation, blessed are those who now die in the Lord. They die in Christ because they go to be with him. So again, I don't know what to expect out of this year. You don't know what to expect out of this year. But what you can expect is the continual display of God's faithfulness and goodness to you. You can look forward every day to meeting fresh mercies the yearning of God's heart for you, that truth alone should compel you to seek him, to compel you to resist and stand firm in the midst of temptation. That tomorrow, after all this temptation in this moment, tomorrow God's mercy in Christ will be there to meet me as I wake up and open these eyes. That's always guaranteed, always guaranteed because of this new covenant that we are a part of. You see, we read the Bible not just in light of the individual portions and pieces. We read the Bible canonically. In other words, we read it in light of the whole canon of Scripture, the whole collected writings of the Bible. And so when we ask the question, why all of this? Why can this give us hope? The answer is because Christ, by his death, has secured the fact that this is a guarantee for all of us. He purchased by his death every promise and every blessing that could ever be given to us from God himself. And now it is just, hear me out, it is just for God to display mercy to you. Because for him not to display mercy would be for him to be unjust. Why? Because Christ earned this mercy for you. That's why... John says, God is faithful and just to forgive us. We might say, well, he's faithful and merciful to forgive us. But John says, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because Christ has paid the price. God considers it a just thing to pour his mercy over you. God considers it a just thing to meet you with new mercies this morning. God considers it a just thing to continue to display his unwavering hesed to you this morning, Christian believer.
and he will never be taken away from you as your portion. I heard the story this week of a shipwreck back in the day and horrible storm at sea and the, sh- the ship was just shredded to pieces. Wooden planks floating all over the place. And when they sent the rescue crew in the morning after everything had calmed down, there was this young boy uh, clinging to uh, a rock in the sea. And when they interviewed him and they asked him, you know, what was it like? I mean, being out here with no lights, the, the, the raging of the seas, the lightning, thunder, all of that. What was it like to, be, to not even see any lights on the horizon and to be out here alone? Were you, was, it, was it cold? Yes, it was cold. Were you, were you scared? I was scared. Yeah. Were you terrified? Yes, I was terrified. All those things, all those things. He says, but this one thing I know, this rock never moved. <laughs> this rock, everything else was moving. Everything else was raging, but this rock never moved. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. May we seek him this year. If the Lord wills that we live And may we realize that, as the song says, our hope is built on nothing less. He is our rock. He is our portion, our prize, our possession. He is good all the time. He is worthy of all your trust this morning. He's all that you will ever need. He is good to the soul who seeks him. And he will ultimately deliver all who wait him. That's what we have to look forward to this year, this day. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you so much for your promises in Christ that are yes and amen. Thank you that your mercy, your yearning, your loyal love, your loving kindness is guaranteed even when The next day isn't guaranteed, much less the next year. Thank you for Christ who purchased all of this glory for us. Thank you that he is our faithful high priest. We bless you. I pray that you would save those who have yet to be saved and strengthen your people this morning by revealing to them afresh your loyal love, your faithfulness, and your mercy. I ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Something, something really precious hit me as I left the house to pray over this text and pray about this text and just pray this text into my soul on Friday. The thought hit me. Hesed was such a precious and powerful word in the Old Testament. Where did it go in the New Testament? And it was just so clear to me. Hesed is there in the New Testament in the form of a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment in the flesh of God's steadfast love and loyalty to us.